Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Patience pays off to make sure you start off with a good at least 7.5%, 8% cap rate because interest rates are going to go up and a lot of people are going to... <laughs> be in shock in three and four years from now. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure, free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name, episode 565, titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff with us today. Michael Reinhard. How you doing, Michael? Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah, nice to have you on the show. And a little bit about Michael. He is a commercial mortgage banker at Texas Commercial Mortgage. He is the author of the book Commercial Mortgages 101, Everything You Need to Know to Create a Winning Loan Request Package. He's got his master's degree in land economics and real estate. 
and he is based in Houston, Texas. So with that being said, Michael, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your focus? Yes, Joe. As you had mentioned, I received my master's degree in 1989 and immediately began my career working for the savings and loan in the REO department. At that time, the savings and loan crisis was at its pinnacle and basically there's no lending on real estate in Texas for the most part in the country and kind of cut my teeth on commercial real estate by analyzing the assets, the cash flow of the assets at the bank that were basically on the chopping block to get sold. So it was the mandate by the, I guess, Resolution Trust Corporation. It's RTC acronym that most people are familiar with. They're probably in their 40s and 50s. And that's where I really learned the analysis of cash flow for all types of properties. So it was a good, well, kind of rounded, quick education in, in all types of commercial properties. It was from multifamily to office to, to warehouse industrial and self-storage and, and even mud receivables. What are mud? Uh, re- sorry, what are mud receivables? Uh, it's a, mud is an acronym for municipal utility district. So, for example, if you're outside a uh, subdivision and a growing community is outside the reach of the cities, like the main cities water facilities, it's almost like a privately run organization to provide water you know, water lines to the community, and usually the taxes are a lot higher and. And so and there's usually there's like a board. It's kind of a quasi-government agency that's privately kind of run and provides the utilities to that area because the city hasn't been able to get out that far. And I don't know exactly how they were set up or the history of them, but when a developer would develop a subdivision for single-family homes or even a multifamily property, you've got to go to the mud board to get approval for the capacity you've got to determine if there's enough capacity to build a 200-unit apartment complex, and you'd have to get the board to vote on it. There's some politics involved. But when you do that, and let's say, because I mentioned that at the bank, when the savings and loans crisis hit and the recession, a lot of these subdivisions, they were abandoned, and there was a lot of money spent on these water utility, I don't know if they were just water taps or sometimes they're water plants or water pumps, things like that, were just sitting out there had value. So the bank owned those and we were just trying to determine what the value of those were at the time. So that was kind of interesting. So with that said, in the early 90s, there were a lot of ex-bankers, a lot of ex-real estate people in the late 80s, early 90s that were working for these different failed savings and loans. They were all being propped up by the Southwest bailout government financial rescue. So when all the assets were sold, everybody was kind of losing their jobs, worked themselves out of a job. So there's just a glut of real estate analysts, people in 1993, 94, and then we had another recession in 94. That's when I transitioned into working as an analyst on the mortgage banking side because around 94, 95, this new conduit lending, it's called the CMBS loan. CMBS is a commercial mortgage-backed security. It's the same thing as a residential MBS. So that was a kind of a new vehicle to provide commercial real estate loans to commercial property investors and I started off as an analyst at a large commercial real estate firm called Grubb Ellis, which is a national firm. And that's where I started to kind of had to shift a little bit my real estate career from just more of an analyst and selling assets to now getting on the mortgage side. It was a good move and learned the conduit lending along with Fannie Mae and 
Freddie Mac agency lending and spent years as an analyst and underwriter working for various banks like Bank of America, John Hancock Life, and some other smaller Texas banks. And finally decided in 2009 when the great financial crisis hit, of course, so many people got laid off, there just wasn't any lending. That's when I decided to just take all the expertise I had and venture out as an independent commercial mortgage banker. And at the time, that's when I wrote the book. That's kind of the genesis of my current position as a commercial mortgage banker because I spent years and years as an analyst, underwriter, and I felt at that point there's no place to go at the bank. I was never really an executive or a major stockholder of a bank, so I thought there's really not much more for me to do or contribute at a bank and would prefer to be able to help investors with all types of financing because as a broker, if one bank says no, then I just go to the next bank or the next type of lender. Mm-hmm. And so it's more exciting. It's more challenging. Every deal is different. There's not one commercial real estate loan that's alike unless you're just doing the same old cookie cutter Fannie Mae loan. That's how I came about working for myself. So I've got clients in California and Florida and, and Texas doing some loans in Indianapolis. So I can do loans nationwide. I normally don't do anything in California because – there's just an inordinate number of brokers there, and I don't know really know the market in California. It's a different market, and there are some licensing requirements. Texas is big enough. There's plenty of real estate here. Yes, there is. That's for sure. And I have purchased your book right before we got on the call. I bought your book, Commercial Mortgages 101, Everything You Need to Know, to create a winning loan request package. I'm very intrigued by this, and I'd like to spend some time talking about the content of your book. For a best-ever listener who has some single-family home properties and maybe a small multifamily property, but now they want to go a little bit larger, and let's, for the sake of simplicity, let's say it's multifamily. They want to go a little bit larger to, say, a 20-30 unit property. What do they need to know about commercial loans, in particular as it relates to getting a package together for the lender? The first thing I'd like to emphasize is that a commercial real estate loan, it's an entirely different industry than a residential loan. A residential loan meaning either a homeowner loan or even a one to four family, whether it's a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. Everything you know about and any experience you have with that type of loan is just Forget about it. Don't even try to make a comparison. It's a different industry. So when you're attempting to buy a five-unit or a 10-unit or 20-unit, as you suggested, oftentimes you have to deal with a local bank or maybe a national apartment lender. And credit scores, for example, would be the first place to start. It's always good to have a good credit score. It's not all that critical where residential mortgages are just almost like it just literally hinges on your credit score only, of course, income. But with commercial real estate loans, credit score is not the top consideration. It's not the most important. Then the next thing that a lender would like to see in an investor is net worth and liquidity. And net worth is obviously the difference between your assets and liabilities. And they like to see a net worth equal to or greater than the loan amount. So if you're wanting to buy a $1,250,000 
apartment building. I always like to use that number, a million two fifty, and an eighty percent loan to be a million dollar loan. They would like to see your net worth equal to a million or more. And it, it is not always the rule that you have to have a million dollar net worth. You could have eight hundred thousand, six hundred, because if you have a lot of income, if you have a good income, you have a high salary or a W two wage salary, or you're self employed and make a lot of money. Net worth is not all that important. There's some mitigation for the net worth. Then the liquidity is really important. Yes, you have to have enough money to put down. In that situation, you need $250,000 to put down. But if that's going to use up all your cash just to get into that deal, the lenders will look upon that as a little weary because you have no cash left. They don't like to see someone use up all of their cash after a closing and then not have anything for an emergency such as a $10,000, deductible for an insurance claim, let's say you have a fire just immediately after you purchased the apartment building, which has happened to one of my clients within three weeks, four weeks, he had a fire after just closing on the 44-unit apartment complex, and he had to make a claim, and the lender wants to know that you have enough cash to make the claim and get the property fixed and get it released or retenanted and cash flowing sufficient enough so it doesn't put your payments in jeopardy and put any hardship on you. What specifically, what type of liquidity do they look for? It varies between lenders. The general rule is 10 to 20% of the loan amount. So if you're wanting to borrow a million dollars, you have at least 100000 after closing. 150000 200000 is even better. Sometimes they use 6 to 12 months worth of principal and interest payments. So if your mortgage payment was, let's say, 10000 a month, they'd like to see 120000 or so in liquidity. So those are the general rules. And then the next would be ownership experience. Owning a duplex or three or four single-family rentals or maybe 10 or 12, and you could have 30 of them, that's even better if you have a large portfolio single-family rental. But if you've only had one or two and maybe a couple of duplexes, that's not the same as a multifamily because it's a little bit different animal. And anywhere between five up to maybe 50 units, They pretty much allow you to self-manage the property because there's not a lot of third-party management companies that would want to take on a management of that size. It's just too small. They don't make enough money to do it. Because the lender knows that it's difficult to find a third-party management company and they know that the investor will be attempting to manage the property themselves, they want to see, hey, what do you know about leasing and doing the credit checking and verifying employment and background and the criminal background and just qualifying tenants and management of the property. and So they're going to want to know if you have some experience in managing the property. You could have owned properties and had somebody third-party management. That's fine, too. So ownership experience and management experience. Ownership experience is a little bit more important than management because they know not everybody manages their own property, and it's not that important. So those are the five net worth, liquidity, ownership, experience and management experience, credit score, that's six. Income in terms of whatever you're a W-2 employee or self-employed, they also want to know about if you have a portfolio of properties, they want to look at your global cash flow. How much cash do you earn after debt service? Because any excess cash flow after debt service, meaning you've got your net operating income, then you have a principal and interest payment to the lender, The rest is taxable income. That's free cash flow. Not necessarily free cash flow, but that's 
taxable income that you have left over that you're experiencing some hardship on one property, you can then move that cash around to keep all your debt service intact. So a lender likes to see your global cash flow, and that would be your income and whatever profession you're in, or if you're in real estate full-time, they want to just see your overall cash flow. And there's no really ratio on that. Like people ask me about your debt to income, what is the residential ratio? It's your income to debt or it's a debt to income. They don't really use that in commercial real estate. They just look at the property's loan to value and the debt coverage ratio, meaning how much does the net operating income exceed the monthly principal and interest payment. And the PITI is not applicable. So when I say debt service, it's not principal interest taxes insurance. In commercial real estate, it's just PI. It's just principal and interest because in multifamily investing, as part of your operating expenses, it includes property taxes and insurance. It's always an operating expense. It's not a part of your payment to the lender because those may be escrows in those one to four family. It's still an operating expense, but they collect them. And it's not to say that the commercial lender doesn't escrow for taxes insurance. They do. But when they're calculating all their ratios, your debt coverage ratio, that's only principal and interest. What are some immediate disqualifiers that a commercial lender will have? Generally, the first thing I like to ask is an extremely low credit score is, I would say, below 600. We'll raise some eyebrows. We'll, we'll require further explanation. So when you get into the 500, that's difficult. The next would be any bankruptcies. And usually anything older than 10 years is okay. So any bankruptcies less than 10 years may disqualify you. And then foreclosures, any type of foreclosure, and any summary judgments, and that could be for any reason, any summary judgment, which is basically a court-ordered settlement in which somebody has won a claim against you for any reason, any business lawsuit, any real estate, and then which you obviously have not been able to settle or pay, and then therefore it winds up on your credit report because often there's no really explanation of that on the credit report. There's not much detail, so you then have to ask the credit applicant to say, well, what is this and what was it for? And, mm -hmm. and usually another thing is self-employed people who are living off the cash flow of some real estate investments. So if you have one or two or three single-family rentals and that's all you have, but that income is what's supporting your family, that doesn't bode too well for the lender because they see that you're generating enough income, obviously, to support your family or your house or even if you're single, but it doesn't leave anything left to service the debt of another loan or to give you any cushion in the events of some financial hardship. It's just too tight. They like to see people who don't have to depend on their commercial real estate investments or even their single-family real estate investments. They don't have to depend on it to pay their bills. Now, if you have a huge portfolio and you're making 200000 a year off your real estate, that's fine. But if you're just barely getting by and then you're trying to buy your next deal, that's a little bit of risk to the lender. So self-employed people have to be pretty well established. What type of loan-to-value ratios should we project when we're initially running numbers on a stabilized multifamily property of about 30 units? 
80% is the standard loan-to-value for a multifamily apartment building. Anything else commercial-wise, an office building, a retail center, industrial warehouse, medical office, is 75%. But there are some exceptions on the 80% for multifamily, and that would be depending on the debt coverage ratio, how much the debt coverage ratio is, how high it is, the income of the borrower, and the strength of creditworthiness and financial strength of the borrower. If you don't have much net worth and you're trying to do your first deal or second deal, they may say, well, we're not going to provide that much leverage. We'd rather limit our exposure to 75% and not 80 So if all looks good, good income, decent net worth, you can always pretty much get an 80% loan. But there are extenuating circumstances that may limit to 75%. So each deal, all the information has to be considered, the borrower information and the property information. And, and the age, it could be an older property in a rougher neighborhood, and it's really subjective. So it's up to the chief credit officer, chief lending officer, to determine whether they can go that high. Michael, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I know this sounds simple, but not to overpay for properties based on when cap rates are trending down. Because right now, and what's going to happen to my clients that have five-year money with banks, interest rates are going to go up, and cap rates that are now in the 6 to 7%, if they don't go up with interest rates, a lot of borrowers are going to be stuck trying to refinance a property five years from now at a much higher interest rate, and I'm talking about 7%, where now the lender is making more money than the investor is. So it has to do with buying at the right cap rate. Don't buy into this notion of where else you're going to put your money, right? 6% is good return, but you can get burned in real estate using that logic. So no matter how badly you want to buy a property and how you want to get into this market and get in the game, patience pays off to make sure you start off with a good at least seven and a half, 8% cap rate because interest rates are going to go up and a lot of people are going to <laughs> be in shock in three or four years from now because if you don't have rental rates that are increasing to increase the value of the property, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to refinance. And what's going to happen your return on your equity is going to plummet if you had paid too low of a cap rate in a rising interest rate market. Good cautionary advice, that's for sure. Thanks for sharing that. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Oh, absolutely. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Are you ready to grow and protect your wealth in any market? Join Cashflow Tactics to learn the exact strategies real estate investors can use to maximize returns using whole life insurance as a new banking resource. Visit CashflowTactics.com. That's C-A-S-H-F-L-O-W-T-A-C-T-I-S dot com. What's the best ever book you've read? Hamilton. I just finished it. Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, yeah. I just finished reading it. I was like, this guy's a genius. He's a financier. This guy was a genius. Created our financial system. 
there's a couple books out about him. I've got a gigantic one that I'm about 20% of the way through. I've been working on for about six months. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Uh, I'm at, I'm, it's the uh, Alexander Hamilton's name of the book, Ron Chernow. It's the actual book that inspired that musical Hamilton. Okay. Uh, it's, it. it's 800 pages long. He created our financial system. He created basically our mortgage system. It's amazing. that This guy was a renaissance man. He died at a young age of 49. He just wasn't given the credit that he deserves. Best ever transaction you've done? I placed some preferred equity for a group that was buying a multifamily property in San Antonio. And they had the deal under contract for a long time. And the investors were just coming up short. Well, they weren't just coming up short. They were about three to four million short of raising their equity. And they had literally three weeks to close. I was able to bring in that preferred equity lender that provided $3.2 million in equity that was able to save the deal, salvage the deal. Ernest Money was hard at risk. And I made a handsome fee on $3.2 million. What type of rate would that preferred equity partner charge? It was 15%, but there was no carried interest or what they call no promotion, meaning that they had a superior position of preferred equity versus the common equity, but it was priced like mezzanine financing, which is like a second loan. Mm -hmm. So that means they're just saying, look, all we want is a 15% annual return we don't get any of the upside. We don't get any of the profit. Let's say you sell it, you finance it. We don't get any more. So we're not going to increase our return where a joint venture equity investor would say, okay, I'm going to get an 8% preferred return every year, and then I'm going to get 50% of the cash flow when they sell it. Well, then if you do an internal rate of return calculation over that three- or four- or five-year period, you could have wound up making, let's say, a 20% internal rate of return. Well, it was simple. It's just a plain, non-compounding 15% return on their investment. So if they invested $3 million, they're going to make 450000 and that's all they get. And after the three years, they just get their 15% for over three years. It, yeah, get anything more it, and, nothing, and nothing less. It was a three-year term. Yeah, it would, it would be a three-year term, and they had an option to extend. So if they needed more time, they would have given them another year. That's interesting. Yeah, so they wouldn't have made any more or less. They would have gotten their 450000 for those three years. And no matter how much the sponsor, if they made $2 million profit, they yeah. the preferred right. equity lender would not get any of that. Did they buy this property all cash? No, there was a, that's why it was best deal ever because there was an existing HUD loan that they were assuming. And there's some complications under any kind of a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or even an FHA HUD loan because they don't allow hard second liens. They don't allow a pledge of the partnership interest that mezzanine financing usually involves. This lender is familiar with all of those loan covenants and requirements, so they're able to structure the partnership agreement, basically amend the partnership agreement, to secure their investment rights because they weren't taking an ownership interest, but they have certain rights and remedies. And if they didn't pay back that 15%, then they could essentially take over. Really, they actually provide credit enhancement to the transaction because the company is 
well capitalized and actually is probably worth more than the investor sponsorship. So those first lien lenders, they're fine with that. So the time was running out, the approval of that, assuming that loan was running out, this group was able to work through the terms of the partnership agreement and within three weeks, analyze the transaction yep. and make a decision and fund it in three weeks, which is it actually less than that because the borrower was really becoming a little difficult to deal with because they were making some demands. And I said, look, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I said, this is a good deal. Quit, yep, yep. quit pushing back. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Education. I'm always helping people. I do my own tax return, so I help a lot of people that it had nothing to do with real estate, but just sharing information, just networking and sharing. I believe that sharing and helping people in areas, if you have a specialty of knowledge in areas that I always find it rewarding to share my experiences and help with people because I believe that if I can help you make money or help you achieve your goals and someday you can reciprocate. And when someone calls me and asks me for advice, I don't hurry them off the phone. I'm glad to help someone or refer them to somebody else that could help them because I know how frustrating it can be. I had some accounting questions and tax questions that I was so frustrated with the actual CPAs that I felt like they didn't know what they were talking about. And I actually called the IRS and did all research and I figured out how to solve this problem of mine. And now any time that you spend that much time and effort, then at that point you become an expert because now you can share that and save somebody else the grief <laughs> or getting wrong information. There's plenty of wrong information. Out there. That's a perfect segue into not the wrong information, <laughs> the wrong information part, but the reaching out and talking to people. That's a perfect segue into the last question. Where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? They can reach me at my website at www.texascommercialmortgage.com. It's all spelled out. TexasCommercialMortgage.com. I also have a website for my book. It's www.commercialmortgages101.com. So you can go to my website, TexasCommercialMortgage.com, and then I have a link to the book's website. And I have a phone number on my website. So they can call me. You can send me a message from my website or give me a call. The book's available also at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But I do have a website. And if you order the book from a website, I actually mail you a signed copy. But if you order it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, I'm unable to sign it. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you for being on the show, sharing your best advice ever, talking about the differences between commercial and residential loans, as well as the things we need to make sure we have taken care of prior to applying for a loan. One is credit score 600 plus. Two is net worth of equal the amount of the loan. Three is liquidity, 10 to 20% of loan amount after closing. Four is experience of the owner, so our experience. And five is our global cash flow. So thanks so much for laying that out there so clearly, as well as talking about the things that would dissuade a lender from lending to you and you mentioned the list of those as well and then the interesting story about the 15 percent interest equity partner for that three million bucks in a very short amount of time so thanks so much for being on the show hope you have a best ever day michael and we'll talk to you soon 
Thank you, Joe. Are you ready to grow and protect your wealth in any market? Join Cashflow Tactics to learn the exact strategies real estate investors can use to maximize returns using whole life insurance as a new banking resource. Visit CashflowTactics.com. That's C-A-S-H-F-L-O-W-T-A-C-T-I-S.com.